This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week Podcast. A special guest today is Beck Brown, a well-known Sydney PR communication specialist. Um, she's got a new book out, You've Got This, it's called. It's a subtitle, The Essential Career Handbook for Creative Women. Now, I'm obviously not a woman, but um, there's a fair bit in here for people of both sexes, I think, even though Beck has uh, targeted a little bit to um, females working in the space. But uh, am I right thinking there's a lot for everyone out of this book, Beck? Yeah, there certainly is. It's it's definitely not gender specific. I think the design and aesthetic of the book, because it's been heavily designed like a beautiful magazine, definitely steers more to we- towards women but it's definitely for everybody. I've been speaking with both men in the creative industries, but also men who work in quite highly technical fields. And they were actually quite surprised about how much they were getting out of it. So it's been busy. <laughs> That's what I mean. I went through this in uh, quite a bit of detail uh, this week and I, and I, I learned so much and I thought, wow, you know, there, so there's certainly a lot in here for everybody. Um, I, I thought I might ask you off the top though, the, the communications, the PR space, it's predominantly um, run by and staffed by women. Is that is that pretty much correct? Yeah, historically, PR and comms has been very female driven. I think that particularly some of those numbers are starting to even out a little bit, but it has been an industry that women have succeeded in very well. And um, I think it's an industry that women tend to succeed in a lot anyway, because again, you can't be too gender specific, but a lot of women are very strong communicators. And so it is a great uh, industry for them to work in. Yeah, yeah. Now, just give us a, a, a little bit of background. Now, you didn't start in this industry, did you? You, had a, you were a bit of a performer early on in your life. I did. I started out in the entertainment space. I grew up um, singing as a little girl and I had these big dreams of wanting to be on Broadway or in London's West End in musical theatre. So I went and studied at the Conservatorium of Music and earned a music degree and I started performing straight away and again was working on stage in musicals and in operas and in um, jazz and pop bands and it took me all over the world. Uh, I ended up performing in the UK and Europe and then around Australia, New Zealand and Fiji. So it was a great performing career. And what I do like about um, what entertainment has taught me that I've been able to bring across into the communication space is when you're working in live entertainment, you're always reading the room in real time and getting reactions from people. And you know very quickly if you're turning them on or turning them off. And so that's a really good um, being able to adapt very quickly in the way that you're communicating to them has been um, a good skill that I've picked up from there. But I had, when I was 25, I had what I call my quarter life crisis. Yeah. And I realised that I loved performing, but it was a really challenging career. This was back in the late 90s and early 2000s when there wasn't social media and there wasn't video calls. And being away from your family and friends um, can be quite isolating, as can performing at night a lot, which is when most of the rest of the world is coming home from their jobs. So I decided, I came back to Australia and decided to land in Sydney and I went back to uni and studied a media and communications grad dip majoring in public relations. And from there, uh, very quickly realised it was something I absolutely loved. And uh, not long after that, I worked um, at some small agencies first and then after that, landed a job at Universal Music as the national PR 
which was wonderful, combining my two loves of music and publicity. And that really got me working with some of the biggest names in entertainment, both here in Australia and internationally. Yeah. Um, we might cover this a bit later, but I wanted to mention early on to the how much of a street strategic decision or a choice you made back then um, regarding your long-term future and, and regarding your earning capacity, you know, was, was, could you see it, was, it could have been challenging in the performance space to get where you wanted to financially? From a financial perspective, and that's a great question because a lot of creatives aren't necessarily very commercially minded. Don't get me wrong, plenty are, but sometimes for some creatives and a lot of the people that I was surrounding myself with at the time, it was all about the art and all about the work and having a good financial background or strategy to align with that wasn't necessarily the case. So there was a little bit of that in it, um, but ultimately at the time it came down to just assessing what my values were and I realised that while I loved music, there were so many other things that I really enjoyed as well. And I knew that to take what it would have to take in order to be a star in the entertainment industry, you have to give it your all. You have to give it your 100% of everything that you are. And that didn't leave any time to follow any of the other interests that I had. Things like writing, things like travel, um, things like seeing my family and friends. So I really had to do an assessment of my values first and foremost. Second to that, I think, came the money decision. I think when your values are aligned and you're doing something you're passionate about, you're adaptable, you place a value on yourself and your time, you're not actually going to have a problem earning a decent income. Yeah. Uh, and just quickly on Universal too, it was a special time at Universal back when you were there, weren't you? There's a... It was um, I was involved in the in the music business back then and got to see reps from Universal regularly and there were some special people there who've become almost sort of legends in the industry. Oh, absolutely. So this was all under the reign and still under the reign of the amazing George Ash um, and people like Nadia Balzarolo, um, who's, who has been instrumental in teaching me around publicity and promotions in particular and working with big brands being able to be really commercial, she's a very commercial person. Um, people like Rod Cameron, um, Cyrus Mayahomji. It was a time where it was right off the back of um, where piracy was becoming a real problem. And it was, these were the Napster era. <laughs> this is the Napster era. And so it was a time when the industry really had to dig deep to make sure that they were being as commercial as possible. At that time, because of my background in classics and jazz, I was working very closely with Cyrus Mahomji on um, a big star at the time who was Andre Rieu, who was huge in Australia at the time. Um, he was just, and he still is huge in his audience and his target demographic, my goodness, but he was coming out doing sellout arena tours. I still remember a huge show that he put on um, at the MCG and he, he bought out a life-size replica of a castle from Europe and that was his stage setting and it had to go horizontally across the, the MCG in order to fit in, in the ground. And uh, so but he would do incredible things. But what was great about him at that time was that his audience were buying physical DVDs and physical CDs where the rest of the market in the pop, jazz, you know, in the pop um, world, pop, every any other type of genre really weren't really buying. So 
he was um, quite instrumental. So for me as well, that was kind of a bit of a right place at the right time moment because I was a bit of an instrumental figure at the time at Universal just because they needed that expertise. Yeah. Um, and I think Andre Rieu was, was his, this was virtually his biggest market in the world, certainly per capita, wasn't it, this, the size of the country? It was. I remember at the time a media commentator, they were trying to just understand where this phenomena came from and why Australians loved him so much. And they likened it to um, the fascination that people had with Torval and Dean and the fascination people had with Princess Diana and the Royals. And it was about escapism and very wholesome, beautiful entertainment. And I think it just struck a chord. But, yes, definitely, Australia was definitely his biggest market. Where's he from? Is it from Maastricht? Is that where he's from? Yeah, yes, he's from Holland. Yeah, have you actually been over there at all? No, I didn't get to go. Um, he made me a lovely offer once to come and leave Universal and go travel the world with him as his PR. And it was, it was would have certainly been a great moment, but I decided to stay home in Australia. Um, he, I set up, my goodness, I set up so many media visits to him, though. Richard Wilkins from Nine became a huge champion of his and they worked very closely together. Richard would host all of the behind-the-scene um, VIP events at all of his different concerts. So there were multiple trips for Richard to head over to Maastricht. He's gone to... Andre literally lived in a castle. So um, Richard would go over to his castle. Uh, it was quite an incredible... It was a moment in time, that's for sure. Sure. Yeah, that would have been amazing. Now, let's get back on topic. Tell us a little bit about Inga, who does a lot of the illustrations and, and contributes quite a bit in terms of advice throughout the book. She really does. Inga Campbell, again, a stroke of luck. Mike Campbell is her husband and he worked with me at Universal Music in the PR team. And his wife, Inga, at the time was working at what was ACP, now Bauer, and was um, had deputy art director roles at Grazia and Cosmopolitan. A uh, little bit later on, she then started her own design business called Inkling Design, and she did all of the branding for the comms department, my company now, and I've worked with her extensively. And I always saw these beautiful fashion illustrations that she would create. So when I had this idea for this book, I knew that I wanted it to be in kind of bite-sized snackable format and in this mag beautiful magazine style so that it was a beautiful read that you could dip in and out of and that it wasn't really text heavy. So I approached her to... Um, work with me on this and have her commission all of these beautiful women who are really diverse and really reflective of the community that we live in and she's done an incredible job of those uh, and then on top of that I interviewed her to just get a different perspective from her the book is has some of my own autobiographical anecdotes throughout it in some of my career tips and my do's and don'ts there's also a lot of research in there from other specialists in their field but then I've also talked to Inga for her to give her perspective on the best ways that she's run her business or what her take is on things like personal branding. Yeah okay um, and you're talking I mean, the book is certainly a practical guide it's something you can you know you can keep keep handy to your workspaces as well as you know beside the bed maybe for you know checking stuff um, is it, I'll refer, have you got a copy of the book handy, I should have asked? I do, yeah. There's a, there's a few little things in it, but it makes more sense if you read them. So go to page 23 for me. Yeah. Um, all through here you have lots of little lists which are, which are really handy and it's, it's, it's great to 
to compare to what you know the reader has in their life, what they think, but it's also great to see what where you're at in your life. So just go through that top 10 values for me, which are your current values. So there's a chapter in here really early on, and it's early on on purpose because when you read this first chapter, it kind of sets you up to take on and take in all of the rest of the information that's in the book. So one of the things that ultimately is going to lead to a happy life and a happy career um, is working out what your values are. And so the way to work out what your values are is to just have a think of what it is that's actually important to you. And it has to be intrinsic to you, nobody else, just purely you. And again, your values may change. They may be very similar to what you had growing up as a child and or they may have changed dramatically over the last 10, 20 years. So what you do is you, you would just map out a whole bunch of things that you love and that you value and then you look at that list and you go, if I had to choose just one of those, what's the most important? And you choose one and then you look at everything again and you choose the next and so on. So after a while you'll have a list. So I say get a list of 10 and then from there these values are going to become your guiding light whenever you have to make any kind of decision because you just come back to them. And if you have to make a decision on let's say it's taking a job, you then look at your values and say, well, hang on, if I take this job, is this going to compromise any of my values? So my values, for example, at the moment, uh, number one is health. Number two is compassionate connection. Number three is learning. Number four is excellence. Number five is freedom. Number six are adventures. Number seven is kindness. Number eight is success. Number nine is contentment. And number 10 is wealth. Okay, so let me butt in here. So number 10, a lot of people might be surprised to see wealth. And, and by that, I guess you just mean financial security, not wanting to be, you know, fantastically rich. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong about that. <laughs> but, but I think you say here that earlier on in your career, that used to rank higher up the list. It certainly did. I'd say 10 years ago, they were at the very top. <laughs> yeah. And things like excellence, I used to have perfection as one of my values, which I learnt through trial and error, is a pretty dangerous value to have, basically because you can't achieve it and it's very unsatisfying. Um, where health used to be, and I'm going to admit back when I was 23, I was probably a bit more shallow than I am now and I had beauty at the top of that list <laughs> and that was something that was really important to me. But what I didn't assess, what, what I didn't assess, sorry, back then was whether or not those values that I had were going to make me happy. Now, don't get me wrong, we all, you know, there's the hierarchy of needs and we all need a certain amount of money in order to put a roof over our heads and buy us food and clothes and be happy. But there's a limit on that as well. Um, so wealth to me, it just doesn't sit, it certainly doesn't sit above health. Health is the absolute ultimate for me. I, without it, I can't do anything. So that and then connection with other human beings, with other people, it certainly sits far, you know, far above that. But again, this is just my, these are just my values and that's the great thing about them. They're different for everybody and they may shift and change over the time. So I'm interested to see where these will land in a few years' time. Sure. And I, th I think probably these days, I guess a lot of people might put beauty as part of health perhaps as, you know, overall how they feel, how they look. It's all sort of connected. Yeah, definitely. Health and like well-being or something like that might all be connected, definitely. And I would, I would call health, you know, mental health as well. So all of those things need to fall in line. Yeah. Okay. Um, throughout the book you sort of, you, you think it's 
it's good for people to sort of, I call it cataloguing their journey, but, but making notes, keep, almost keeping a diary and, and sort of trying to keep it up to date, reviewing it. Um, is, that, is that an old school thing or do you think that's something that's still really sort of important today? I think it's so important today because you are, and I've checked, this, is, this isn't a variety, this is all the research. It, literally, I couldn't find any research that refuted this fact that you are 45 to 80% more likely to achieve your goals if you write them down. And it's just that physical act of writing them down. You can write them on a computer, you could write them on your phone, or you could be old school and write them in paper. I do, I tend to journal most mornings when I get up, not for very long, it's usually just a paragraph or so, but every, um, every few months and well, every year without fail, I will map out what I want to achieve uh, over the next three to six months and also what I want to achieve in the next four to five years. And then I'll, I'll review that at the end of each year and just look at how we've gone. And I do it with my husband. We do it together and um, that's, a, that's a recent thing. I think we've only been doing that for three or four years. But it keeps you aligned and even if you don't achieve them, it's so great because life is full of surprises and so it's so great to just stop and reflect and go, oh, okay, none of those things happened, but look at all these other things that did happen. And that's the great thing about life. Having a plan like this doesn't have to be strictly adhered to. And that's the great thing about being a creative, I think, is that by having a bit of a structure or framework around your life, you get to be a bit more creative within it. I think it was um, Flaubert who said, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's um, be orderly in your life um, be regular and orderly in your life so that you can be daring and original in your work. And I really love that. It, it means have a bit of structure in your life and your day-to-day, -day, a bit of routine, and then when you do that, you can be so creative and go all out when you're working or when you're in any other creative pursuit. Okay. Now, look, I'm just going to jump through a, a few different parts of the book because there's way too much to sort of knock it all off in one podcast. Something I really liked was your, it's almost tips for meetings. It's on um, 56, uh -huh. about 56 through to 58. And there's lots of do's, lots of don'ts. I found that uh, really interesting. And there was also, I'm not sure if it's on that page, as you say, um, don't be the DP. <laughs> what the DP is and, and um, how, how bad a look is that? The DP. So obviously in our world, in any kind of world of working in, whether we work in media or advertising or PR or marketing, there are events that we go to, whether they're networking events or in just any kind of industry events. And without a doubt, alcohol will be served. We have a role at the comms department, that nobody will be the DP and the DP is the drunk publicist. And I've, it's come about because, and it's again, you just see this in the industry. There have been many a time that somebody has had a bit of a fall from grace because they've just had one too many um, and they've said or done something that they really regret. And it's not fair that that one moment is going to define your career, but unfortunately, in many cases, it does. Now, I, you know, I love a glass of champagne like anybody, but I try really hard to make sure that at industry events, it's something that, you know, 
sure, we might have a drink, but we keep it to a minimum. Mm. Um, and it is, you know, I think as well today, the industry is changing. That whole party hard, work hard mentality, it is a bit of fun perhaps in the earlier years, but people still need to have some work-life balance and to have some well-being in their life as well. Um, you know, great organisations like Hello Sunday Morning are making sure that people are well supported if they don't want to be drinking at all. And, you know, um, Dry July is a great place to start if you ever want to see if you can make it through, you know, without drinking. And, and I know now, obviously, I think people have been drinking at home a lot more than they were with lockdowns on. And, uh, you know, we're hearing stories that it's really challenging for people's mental health and their physical health. So, Taking it easy with alcohol in this industry, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but I think it's something that um, can certainly help with your career progression if you make some rules about it. Yeah. S sort of connected to that, I guess, and I think it's possibly in a different part of the book, is, is um, you talk about a, a good publicist is often known as the vault. And you, you sort of, you, your tip there is don't get involved in gossip, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. We are not, we have to be... That's hard though, isn't it? Because yeah. every time you show up, some, the first thing, and they say it to me too, what's new? What's, what's goss, you know? And, exactly. And you don't know where to go, do you? Yeah. You need, uh, often before I'll actually go to an event, you think about who's going to be there and, and you think about what's okay to say and what's not. And then you do, though, the great thing about this industry is when you've been working in it a long time, you know who you can trust and who you can't. And there are some people that you can tell a lot of things to, include you in that one, James, and you know it's not going to get around. Um, but, again, it's coming back to you. Your clients trust you to be a confidant and you cannot betray that trust. So it's um, it, quite funny when some, some of my clients heard that I had a book coming out. Um, I had a couple of questions like, it, it, it's not a tell-all, is it? <laughs> And I laughed, but I thought, yeah, that would not only be career-ending, That would, you know, actually that's what it would be, career-ending, but I would never do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, page 80. Now, excuse me as I, um, I've made so many notes here. That, um, simple things like a speaking checklist and point number one, articulation. Um, again, that's something people think, oh, it's just old-timers, you know, but, but it can be, can be critical. Absolutely. I think as a little girl, you know, I had a really, I grew up in the country, so I had a really thick Aussie accent when I was a kid. And because I went to singing lessons quite early, I started having articulation drummed into me and it was making sure you finish the ends of your words. And you don't have to start sounding like a member of the royal family, but you do the more that you can just articulate what you're saying, the more confident you appear, the more convincing you are in a conversation. So it's something, and it's just clear when it comes down to communicating with people, people need to be able to understand what you're saying. So um, articulation, when, when you're speaking, things like articulation, your tone of voice, your pitch, uh, tiny little things like your volume and then your pace, the way that you're, how quickly or slowly you're talking. Uh, one, of the, one of the big things that you hear a lot are people who go up at the ends of their sentences and that is something that uh, a lot of a lot of juniors in particular sometimes make the mistake of doing when they're in meetings and and it's a really simple trick to stop doing 
but and it will it can really change the way that people are perceiving you as well and making you sound a bit more confident and knowing what you're talking about. Um, fascinating chapter called Managing You. There's, there's a lot of practical information here and, and you um, you even lay out what a how your, your day could look in terms of hour by hour, you know, starting from 6am through sort of 10 o'clock at night. And as an aside from that, you always say, look, it's important to get your sleep. Probably a minimum of eight hours is what you're going to need to, to function at your uh, ultimate. Um, but just talk us through that um, that day. Now, is that what your day pretty much looks like from six onwards? Or? The example of the day that I've popped in here is probably me on a dream day. It doesn't always look like that. <laughs> uh, I'm well versed. When, when you're running your own company and if you're working in PR, which is a 24-7 media environment, you can't expect to work really, really regular hours. But what what is normal are short bursts of perhaps really hard work and long days. What's not is an absolute marathon of it where you're doing it for weeks on end because it's not healthy and the only thing it leads to is burnout. And if you're burnt out, you're no use to anybody. So um, this, this chapter was really important because I think there's a lot of talk around work-life balance, but people often think about work-life balance as you have work on one side and life on the other and never the twain shall meet and you just keep piling more and more work on one side and then you try and pile more and more life into the other to weigh it up. But all that happens is you have this heavy load on top of you that you can't manage. So I've, um, I tend to work with something called career life flow where your career and your life flow together. And I think, you know, with the gig economy that we are moving towards and with more and more people working from home than they are in a traditional office all the time, being able to manage your time so that you have some family time through to working and then instead of a normal traditional old school checking at checking at nine, check out at five, and then you never work outside of that, it's just not realistic. So it's making sure that you um, can flow mindfully from maybe having two or three blocks of time for work and then you flow mindfully into maybe an hour of your own personal time and that just happens all the way through your day um, and then you can sustain that for a bit longer. Um, social media is a really good chapter and it's and you sort of keep it simple and it's you, you hear a lot of people get flummoxed by social media and they go oh, I've just got to get off it you know and and the first thing I think is well hang on a minute you know you and you say, um, I love social media, but only because I understand it. And I, I find it's something not really to be scared of because it, it's you control your social media. It's Social media is what, what you want it to be. Sure, other people can impact it, but you can really control it. Yeah, that's it. The saying goes that tools make great servants but terrible masters and I think that social media falls into that category. Social media is a tool and you get to decide how and when you use it. I do think that social media is very important at the moment because we're not seeing each other in real life as much as we usually would be due to lockdown and or any kind of even interstate with the borders being closed. And so having a decent online presence is really going to help you both connect with people and also from a career perspective the ultimate aim, though, of social media is to build real relationships. So 
even though, you know, you might be posting something and you might be liking it, it's those side comments. It's the actual commenting. Liking something is very passive, whereas commenting on something is really active and, and proactive. So where possible, if you are going to use it, um, you know, use it to comment and actually connect with people. The other thing too is just making some boundaries around when you use it. Otherwise, it is an absolute trap (laughs) to it's a rabbit hole to go down and it doesn't need to be that way and and then it's just finding out what platforms you want to be on you don't need to be on every single platform um but work out but you might have a base platform on you know the big ones like linkedin and twitter and instagram for example Um, but again it depends on where your audience is and who you want to be influencing if your bosses are on LinkedIn or your clients, then you should probably be on there as well. If your peers or your customers are on Instagram, you might want to be on there as well. If your journalist friends are all on Twitter, it's probably a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of in the camp now. I've, um, I can't bring myself to hammer Facebook too much. I mean, I, I get it. It's a monopoly and, um, you know, everything they control. You know, I'm sure they're not, they have, they've made a few mistakes with people's data. But to me, Facebook's biggest problem always been that it's been too successful. They were there at the right time providing a service that everybody wanted and everybody piled in. And now they're trying to grapple with it. But I, I get the, to me, I just I don't think they really want to be that sinister, but they just find it difficult to deal with this sort of monster they've created. Yeah, and it's it's hard to with Facebook, obviously there are brands working within Facebook and there are individual people, everyday people working within it. So, and they're qu- it's quite different in terms of what you're looking for and what your outcome is hoping to be as to whether or not you love or hate Facebook. But yeah, it's a big beast. And I think, gosh, I feel like, yes, that would be a whole other podcast conversation yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> I still know that, but just finish maybe on social media, you ask the question, is it really worth it? Then you answer that question. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. <laughs> I know. The reason I say that is, again, thanks to social media, I've received and I constantly get unexpected calls from new business leads. And it might be a friend of somebody that I went to school with who's seen a post that I do on Facebook, or it might be somebody that I've seen who I've posted on Instagram and I've posted something about a brand that I really love or a restaurant that I love. And then, you know, even, or or often I'll have, um, I'll have, other PRs who work in, uh, in other, sorry, PRs that would work in the industry but that don't cover the fields that we do and they can see how passionate we are about our clients thanks to social media and they'll refer work to us as well and vice versa. So, again, it's just a really great online presence to have, particularly now while we're not able to be able to see each other in real life so often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's information all throughout the book, but like you get into that back half and there's some really great practical things, I think. There's just a, a real lot of information to, to, to soak up there. Um, switching off, you say, is, is something that's really important and you've got some sort of life management, time management tips. Yeah, switching off, particularly because so many of us are now working from home, um, at the comms department, we've, the comms department's been going for nearly nine years and we've never had a central office. We've always worked from home. So we did have a little bit of a head start when all the lockdowns started hitting. So the best advice that I had and, you know, learned from me because I did all the wrong things in year one, the best thing is just creating some kind of routine 
And I always now, I get up and I have a shower and I get dressed, do my hair, do my makeup, put shoes on, don't wear makeup every day. It depends if I have meetings. But um, that very active putting your work clothes on puts you into work mode. And then the great thing is as well is at the end of the day, it's if you're still working within your home space, it's those physical cues that will help you to relax. So I always take my shoes off because that's when the end of the workday starts. I'll change the lighting. I'll put different music on. I might burn a candle. Um, and those cues all just signal that the day has ended. And after you've been doing that for a while, it's you don't even notice that you're not going from an office to home anymore. There's one tip that crops up a few times throughout the book, and it's a... Uh, it's a life tip for virtually anybody doing anything, I think, but particularly in this industry, particularly in the entertainment sector, and it's let's just show up, you know, and, and be on time. That's it. Um, I think it was Dolly Parton made the saying famous when she said, get up, dress up, show up. And it is something that I've lived by um, for the last, I, I'm going to say at least 15 years because, and it is something you learn in the entertainment industry. When you're putting on a performance, no matter what is going on in your private life, the show must go on. When that curtain goes up, you're on stage and you have to give your best. But there are days in a corporate career where you might have worked on a project for months and it's, it's D-Day and it's about to hit and you can't fall at that final hurdle because it's on the day, you know, I always say the most innovative, creative, daring people, it doesn't matter what plans you've put in place, if you don't show up and just get it done on the day, none of it matters. So, um, yes, I'm a big, big fan of that one. I, worked, I had the pleasure of working with Dolly Parton. She's the only time I got starstruck working with a celebrity. <laughs> Back when I was at Universal Music and, and that saying of get up, dress up, show up from her, um, I was like, if it's good enough for Dolly, that's good enough for me. <laughs> did you, and this is, I don't want to get off track here, but back in the entertainment, so did you ever have see artists on the way up who, who gave people a hard time and it sort of impacted on later in life and they maybe didn't have the career that they would have liked to have originally? That's a great question. What was really interesting was seeing the commonalities between the people who really made it and were professionals at the top of their game and had really long careers. And they all had things in common. They had things like they could get over disappointment. So if something didn't go well, they might have been a bit annoyed at the time, but they get over it really quickly and they move on. Um, they treat the people that they work with like professionals. They treat it like work. Um, and again, I think it comes back to your values. The people that I know who are at the top of their game in the entertainment industry aren't in it for the fame. Um, they're in it because they love the craft. So the actors love the craft of acting. The musicians love music. The radio personalities love radio. And they're all things that you can't fake and you certainly can't fake it to have a highly successful 20-year career. Somebody like Carl and Jackie O shows, somebody like Jonesy and Amanda, they haven't been at the top of their game in Australia here for that long for no reason. It's because they do the right things. Um, there have been, yeah, some up-and-comers, and you do see they, they don't treat people well. They perhaps are in it for the wrong reasons, perhaps they're in it for the fame or they think they're in it for the brand endorsements. And they find out pretty quickly that if you don't, it's, again, coming back to that get up, dress up, show up. If you don't deliver on what you need to all the time, and it's that consistency, you've got to get in and do it day after day. And that's hard work. Like, it's really hard work. So um, if people aren't prepared to 
put that effort in, then they're just not going to have that success. Look, I knew the time for this uh, interview would fly by because there's so much good stuff you need to talk about. If you don't mind, I'd just like to finish on a couple of things. Now, look, these mightn't strictly be in the book. In fact, you might even be saving them for a second book one day, maybe a, more generally about PR or, or running a business. But I, I just want to ask you a few things. Is, PR seems to me a pretty competitive industry. There's a, a lot of PR businesses out there and a lot of people that start in PR probably ultimately want to have their own business one day. Yeah, I think it is. There is something very powerful because so a good PR really has to sell what they're promoting and you're putting your name to it as well. So if I'm promote, if I'm going to take on a client, I'm going to be out saying Beck Brown endorses this because I'm working on it. So you really do need to choose quite carefully what clients you take on. When I was leaving Universal in my very last, I think it was my very last big talent tour that I did and there was a big international talent manager working with me on it and he was really lovely giving me some advice saying, I'm glad you're going out on your own, good on you. He said, if I give you one piece of of advice, it's be very selective with the clients that you take on because over time you will build a reputation for having great talent and having great clients that you're taking to media or that you're taking to brands to work with. He said, if you don't take, if you don't have the right clients, you're just never going to be successful. And he said, it'll be hard because you'll be offered money and you'll worry about paying your bills, but in just stick with it. It's my only piece of advice. And I did that. And I remember the, in the first 18 months turning down some work and it was terrifying because I didn't know if, if I was going to, you know, be able to pay my team, but that was the best piece of advice. So, but to answer your question, they're the great things about being able to have your own business and that's being able to choose the clients that you work with and then it comes back to your passion points. So my personal passion points, which kind of come back to my values that we talked about at the start, uh, I love media, I love entertainment, I love travel and I love healthy lifestyles. And so they are the four categories that the comms department works in. And then I've built a team of people around me who... I work with who are incredible professionals who also love and value those things. So every day they're excited to work on the clients that we have. And because of that, you know, we've had really long-term partnerships with most of our clients. I'd love to do a travel podcast with you one day when we're all back in there flying again. <laughs> yes, please. Um, and just one more thing too, and this is as much career advice as I guess as running a business advice, but what would you say about pricing yourself and Maybe be careful not to, you know, undervalue what you're worth. Yeah, that's a really good one. I also say, you know, it's useless to be the most daring, original, hardworking professional if you can't sell what you create. And you're never going to have a problem earning a great income if you do place a good value on yourself and your time. Another thing I was really careful to do when I entered the industry was made sure I wasn't undercutting. You know, I put a price on the work that I did and now, you know, we've been going for nine years and the team, you know, between the team of us of five, you know, we have over 80 years of experience working in this space and that's value and that's expertise. And so you do need to put a price on that. And there will be times when you will price yourself out of the market because somebody will be, will do it cheaper than you. Um, but you need to be able to back yourself and know that, look, that's fine. If that client wants to go down a cheaper route, I hope that they get what 
they're paying for. I hope that they'll, they'll probably get what they pay for, to be honest. So you need to be um, willing to make sure that you put the right price on yourself and, and just back yourself. Yeah. Beck Brown, look, it's been great uh, chatting to you. The book is You've Got This, published by Penguin. It's out uh, September 15. All good bookshops. There's probably an e-book, is there? You can get it. Yeah, so it's e-book and it's even an audio book. That was a fun experience. I had to go into the Penguin recording studio and record the audio book. It was quite funny being in there. Uh, the last time I was in a recording studio, I was singing. So it was a very different experience to be reading an entire book instead. Yeah. Look, I'm happy to endorse this, but if you don't believe me, listen to Ash London, um, um, Lee Campbell from uh, Mamma Mia, um, Amanda Keller. Um, they all think it's a, a good read too. So, look, well done with this and uh, great talking to you today. Thank you so much, James.